Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 19. Joshua chapter 19. We're going to be looking at chapters 19 to the end of the book this morning. Last week, we talked about the story of a man named Micah, no relation to the prophet Micah, who hired a Levite to be the priest in his shrine of idols. Micah treated the Levite like a son. But when the opportunity arose to serve as a priest for a whole Israelite tribe, the Levite robbed Micah blind and left him for greener pastures. The Levite then became an illegitimate priest for the tribe of Dan, which was also looking for greener pastures. They left the land God had given them and set out to slaughter the peaceful people of a land they had no right to take. Such was the decadence to which Israel had fallen. That brings us up to the last chapters, where everyone continues to do what seems right in their own eyes. And one tribe of Israel becomes just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Before we dive in, let me warn you, this is possibly one of the most horrifying and disgusting passages in the entire Old Testament. There are no good guys here. This conclusion to Judges is intended to show the depths of degradation, decadence, and even atrocity to which a people who abandon God and do what seems right in their own eyes may fall. Let's start by reading chapter 19, verses 1 to 4. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she she had been there four months, her husband went to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys, and she took him into her parents' home. And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. Let's pray. Lord, I have often prayed for discernment that your people would know whether I am interpreting accurately. And I pray this especially this morning in this very difficult passage. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the story. Like Micah in our last sermon, this Levite was also from the hill country of Ephraim. He took a concubine as a wife. The concubine was often a servant and a second-class wife, a practice that was never approved by God. But verse 2 says she was unfaithful to him and went back home to her parents. After four months, her husband decided that he wanted her back, so he traveled to Bethlehem to persuade her to come back with him. Both she and her dad welcomed him into their home. Now, at that time, hospitality was a big deal. So the woman's dad persuaded her husband to stay with them, as it turned out, for four days. On the morning of the fifth day, the Levite and his concubine wife headed back toward the Levite's home in the hill country of Ephraim. The Levite's servant tried to convince him to stay overnight in the city of Jebus, also known as Jerusalem about six miles north of Bethlehem. But the Levite wanted to stay in an Israelite city, not a pagan city like Jebusite city. 
verses 14 and 15. So they went on. And the sun set as they neared near Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. Gibeah was another four miles north of Jerusalem. It's important to note that Gibeah was an Israelite city in the tribe of Benjamin. Now in our time, no one's going to pick up some strangers in the city square and invite them into your home. But in those days when they had no holiday inns, hospitality was a big deal. So for no one in an Israelite town to offer hospitality to another Israelite was a bit strange, to say the least. It was certainly a big contrast to the hospitality the Levite had received for the last five days. Finally, however, an old man coming home from his work in the fields passed by. Verse 17 says, When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? The Levite said he was on his way back home to the hill country in Ephraim, but that no one had taken them in for the night. As it turned out, the old man was also from the hill country of Ephraim. So the old man welcomed the Levite, his servant, and his concubine wife into his home. The old man apparently knew it was not safe to be out in the town square of Gibeah at night. Verse 22, While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Notice that these wicked men are not pagan Canaanites or Jebusites. They are Israelites. They have descended into such decadence that they are no better than the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. And just like in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, verses 23 to 26 go on to say, The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. In verse 24, the phrase, do to them whatever you wish, in Hebrew, is literally, do what is good in your own eyes. The idea is that when people do what is good in their own eyes, rather than what is good in the eyes of God, this is the kind of atrocity that can result. And as I said, these are not pagan Canaanites or Jebusites who have committed this atrocity. These are Israelites. They have descended into such decadence that they are no better than the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the Levite and his host are no better. They are doing what seems right in their own eyes by offering their own wife and daughter to be abused. This story was so monstrous it was remembered centuries later when the prophet Hosea said that people in his own day had, quote, sunk into the deep corruption as in the days of Gibeah. Verses 25 to 
the Levite's callousness and total disregard for his concubine wife, comes out clearly in verses 27 and 28. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door to the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Now notice that the Levite didn't go out to find his wife. He went out to continue on his way. He had absolutely no concern for her at all. His callousness and heartlessness are mind-boggling. And yet the story gets even worse. Burial was a big deal in Jewish culture. But rather than giving his wife an honorable burial, he dismembered her. The Levite then had her body parts distributed to the tribes of Israel. He was trying to stir up outrage to get vengeance for what the men of Gibeah had done. Not because he ever cared about his wife. The story is very clear that he didn't give a hoot about his wife. I think he just wanted vengeance because his honor had been besmirched. In chapter 20, the tribes of Israel were rightly outraged. An enormous number of soldiers and leaders from all over Israel gathered and demanded, tell us how this awful thing happened. The Levite then gave his spin on what happened, conveniently leaving out the part about how he had turned his wife over to the men of Gibeah. He then demanded to know what Israel was going to do about it. The Israelites resolved to send an army to kill the men of Gibeah and purge the evil from Israel. Now, Gibeah was a town in the tribe of Benjamin. Rather than joining with the other Israelite tribes in seeking justice for the atrocity committed by the men of Gibeah, the Benjamites organized an army to defend the men of Gibeah, who were no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. It seems like the tribe of Benjamin may have been defending Gibeah simply because Gibeah was a city of their own tribe. Very much like today, when politicians defend evil behavior simply because it was committed by someone from their own party. In chapter 20, verse 9, the Israelites decide to cast lots to determine who should go first. In other words, they had already decided what they were going to do. In verse 9, uh, before asking God about it, in verse 18. So God said Judah should go first. And Judah was soundly defeated. So verse 23 says, The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening. They inquired of the Lord. They said, Shall we go up again to fight the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? Notice how they now call Benjamin their fellow Israelites. After their defeat, Israel may be thinking this war was not such a good idea after all. But the Lord answered, go up against them. So on the second day, they attacked the Benjamites at Gibeah again. And again, the Israelites were soundly defeated. Verse 26. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel. And there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. 
verse 28, they asked God, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. You see, the first time the Israelites had determined to attack Gibeah before even asking God about it, so God just let them do what they had decided to do, and Israel was defeated. The second time the Israelites were a bit more humble, asking whether to go or not, but they presumed to go to God directly rather than through the high priest as required in the law of Moses, and they were defeated again. Finally, they not only humble themselves, weeping, fasting, and offering sacrifices, but they finally do what they should have done in the first place. They go up to Bethel, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and ask Phinehas the high priest, who was the grandson of Aaron, and Phinehas consults with God. And God gives Phinehas and Israel the answer in verse 28. Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. God was about to give justice for the woman who was so horribly abused. Israel laid an ambush for Gibeah and the Benjamites. And verse 35 says, The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. In my opinion, however, the Israelites didn't just want justice. They wanted vengeance. Even though the law of Moses prohibited vengeance, so Israel didn't stop with Gibeah. Verse 48 says, The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across they set on fire. I think Israel had gone way beyond the justice God had approved against the wicked city of Gibeah. They went on to wipe out almost the entire tribe of Benjamin, including the women and children. The same Israelites who refused to kill all the Canaanites had no qualms about wiping out their fellow Israelites. But the story doesn't end here. Chapter 21, verse 1 tells us, The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The problem was that according to chapter 20, verse 47 and 48, everyone in Benjamin had been slaughtered, except for 600 men who had fled to the wilderness. Now, Israelites were forbidden by the law of Moses to marry godless Canaanites. So if they couldn't marry Israelites either, the tribe of Benjamin was doomed. They would soon die out completely. In chapter 21, Israel then held a solemn assembly at Mizpah and required attendance by representatives from all the tribes. Verse 5 adds that they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed, that who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. This was not according to the law of Moses. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. It turned out that no one from the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead had attended this solemn assembly. So Israelites sent 12,000 soldiers to Jabesh-Gilead and slaughtered everyone in town. Everyone, that is, except 400 virgins. The Israelites kidnapped these orphaned young ladies and gave them to the men of Benjamin for wives. 
But these 400 women were not enough for the surviving 600 men of Benjamin. So the elders of Israel then told the Benjamites about an annual festival in the Israelite town of Shiloh, in which the young women would come out dancing. The Israelites suggested that the men of Benjamin kidnap these young women for wives. And that's just what they did. The book of Judges concludes in verse 25 saying, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This passage is about the anarchy, atrocity, and horror that can result when everyone does as they see fit or what is right in their own eyes. So let's put the, judge, put the story of Judges in the broader context. After 400 years of total decadence by the Canaanites, God's patience finally ran out, and his judgment on Canaan was about to fall at the hands of his people Israel. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would one day inherit the land of Canaan, and that day had come. But God had solemnly warned his people that none of the Canaanites were to be allowed to remain in the land, or they would pervert Israel and drag them down into decadence. The story of Judges is about Israel's disobedience to God's command and how what God warned came to pass. Israel allowed the Canaanites to remain, and the Israelites were drawn into decadence and even atrocities, one tribe even descending to the level of Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> now, you need to use a lot of discernment in what I'm about to say. That's because what I'm about to say is my view alone. And I once had a professor who warned that when someone sees something in the Bible that no one has ever seen before, it might be because it's just not really there. I'm sure some of you have seen the movie Sixth Sense. Throughout the movie, the star would occasionally talk to his wife, but she would never respond to him. I thought she must really be mad to give him such a silent treatment day after day after day. But at the end of the movie, we find out, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, plug your ears, that all through the movie, the man was actually dead. And the only one who could see and talk to him was a young boy who could see the spirits of dead people. It was a, wow, I never saw that coming moment. For me, the ending of Judges is kind of like that moment. What I mean is that all through Judges, we've seen a progressive downhill spiral of more and more idolatry and decadence. All the way from good judges like Othniel and Deborah, who have nothing bad recorded about them, to Jephthah and Samson, who are thoroughly canonized and even despicable in many ways. But everything changes in these last three chapters. All of a sudden, there is no mention at all of idolatry or the gods of Canaan. No Baal, no Dagon, no Ashtoreth gods. The Israelites seek guidance from the Lord alone. There's also no mention of Philistines, Hittites, or Hivites. In fact, the only mention of Canaanites at all is the city of Jebus. And that's only to imply that the Levite might have been better off staying in a Canaanite town than in the Israelite town of Gibeah. And what is even more puzzling is that according to chapter 20, verse 28, this story takes place in the time of the high priest Phineas who was the grandson of Moses' brother Aaron. 
In other words, this story in chapters 19 to 21 takes place chronologically, not at the end of the time of Judges, but shortly after the death of Joshua at the very beginning of the time of Judges. The surprising part is that it didn't take 350 years for Israel to finally descend to the depths of decadence found in these chapters. They had already become that perverse and decadent not long after Joshua's death. And we should have guessed that from the phrase that occurs at the very beginning of Judges in chapter 2, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It only took one generation for Israel to turn away from their commitment to follow the Lord in chapter Joshua 24 and to descend to the atrocities of rape, mutilation, civil war, and mass murder. Although our story today involves all Israel, these atrocities were committed in the hill country of Ephraim where Joshua had been buried. In fact, the high priest Eliezer, the son of Moses' brother Aaron, had been buried not long before in the very city of Gibeah, the city that in little more than one generation had already become as evil as Sodom and Gomorrah. The lesson is a warning for us that Christianity is only one generation from extinction in any given country. It is vitally important that our children and grandchildren be taught to love the Lord our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. This is why the ministry of our camp, our Sunday school, our youth group, our kids group, our breakfast club, are so vitally important. But we can't leave that instruction just up to the church. Through our words and our life, all of us need to build into our kids and grandkids a dedication and love, love and devotion to Christ above all else. Let's pray. God, we pray for our kids. We pray that you would raise up a generation of kids who would be like Othniel and Deborah and Barak and Gideon, who would have the courage to stand for you in the midst of a godless and Canaanite culture. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.